0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
1: This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice.
2: Hello, Australia. Welcome to My Millennial Money. I'm Glenn James. Today, I have got a friend of mine from the U.S., Chris Browning from the podcast Popcorn Finance. G'day Chris, how are you? Hey, I'm doing good. Glenn, it's great to be talking with you. Thanks for the invite. No worries. And a lot of people won't know, and you might not even know, but when we first met, I think in 2017, mm-hmm. I think you were my first ever podcast interviewee. Really? Yeah. because That's an honor. I remember that. Uh, yeah. So we were at a conference in the States called FinCon and Literally how we met and I met some other really good people, there was a spreadsheet that that was open for everyone and you could just put if you want to be an interviewee or an interviewer on a podcast or whatever, go through the spreadsheet and I'm just looking and there was probably 300 names on the spreadsheet or more. (laughs) I'm just like, yeah, this guy sounds interesting. Yep, yep. Emailed him and then we sat down and did an episode on the Sort Your Money Out show, which no longer exists. Uh, so, we'll just call this the real interview and the first one was a rehearsal.
0: <laughs> yeah, You had a very impressive setup for a portable, uh, portable <laughs> Yeah, show. I was very impressed. Yeah,
2: I, I didn't know what I was doing, to be honest. I had a lot of gear, <laughs> uh, but hey, we, yeah. we got a good result. <laughs> now, we're going to talk in this episode a bit about your view on money and uh, how you have gone through the years. Uh, working on your side hustle, about your listeners, about living in the USA. And then I want to bring it home with an investing chat, a chat about how you manage money, and we'll just see where it takes us. So, Chris, talk to us about popcorn finance. Firstly, what is it and where can we find it?
0: And yeah, what's, what's happening with the show? Yeah, so Popcorn Finance is a, a short-form show that I've been running for a little over three years now. And the whole premise behind it is uh, I discuss finance and about the time it takes to make popcorn. So all the shows are, are relatively short. I try to keep it under 10 minutes. Uh, when it's going long, my brother will always tell me, he's like, hey man, you burned, you burned the popcorn on that one. I don't know what you're doing. But <laughs> my excuse is, hey, I'm cooking for my guests too. It's bags, bags of popcorn for everybody. But uh, yeah, that was the whole premise. I wanted to make finance approachable and something people could pick up and take with them when they had a few minutes. And and hopefully learn something about finance so uh you can just look for popcorn finance anywhere you you're listening to this show or anywhere you, you like to listen to podcasts
2: love it and i i often drop in and listen to the odd episode and and this is the cool thing about personal finance like yes the legislation is different wherever you are in the world but the basic
0: concepts are the same mm, true and I, I used to worry about that too it's like is this going to resonate with people outside of the u.s but you're right the the basic you know content of um discipline and focus and looking towards your goals and planning all that works from country to country
2: totally so we'll get more about the listeners of your show and the main money issues that you chat about but i guess growing up like can you
0: remember your earliest memory about money Mm, that's I, i love this question because when i think back the one thing that stands out to me is I, I know my family and I, we didn't really sit down and have money talks. Like it, There never really was a discussion of this is how you manage money and this is what we're doing. It was more so, hey, you're the kid, just go ahead and focus on school. You do that part and we'll handle all of this other stuff over here. So I never got a real formal education growing up. But the one thing I really remember about my first understanding of money is being in, I think, like maybe middle school, maybe, which for us is like grade seven and eight, um, or going into ninth grade, um, needing money, not being able to get a job because legally I wasn't old enough to work, and trying to figure out how. What are some creative ways I can bring in some income? Because you know I don't need a lot of money. I just need to buy a few video games here and there. And I remember this was in the the heyday of like the Napsters and the Kazaa and the LimeWire, and so. I would go because I was like one of my few friends who actually had you know internet, and I would go and I would make these mixed CDs for people. It's like, hey, what songs are you looking for? Who, who, who's the artist you're, you're into? And I would make these CDs. I think I can legally say this now; I think it's been long enough. And I, I would I would sell these CDs to uh, to friends at school, and that was the first time I was able to actually bring in a little bit of money. My, my business died not too long after people found out what I was doing, but uh, that was my first experience of. Hey, if you, if you work hard or maybe find something creative that someone's not thinking of, if you find that spot you can fit in, there's ways to make money and, you know, support yourself without having a traditional job, especially since I was too young. Yeah. That's so important. I mean, I just
2: love that. Work hard, be creative, put some effort in, money should come. Mm. Now, if podcasting doesn't work for you, organized crime may be maybe <laughs> maybe, the, maybe the next big thing that's <laughs> so funny you' were burning CDs because probably around that same time, I was one of the first people where I live in the area to ever have a CD burner, and as like a mm. 13 year old I had randoms that would contact me and I would burn and copy CDs for them like that's how much of a tech nerd I was
0: so <laughs> yeah it was well it's so weird to think there was a time where people had like these huge drastic um, like stockpiles of technology like some people had nothing some people had internet and cd burners and it was like you were just the greatest if you had any of those things totally now where did you grow up like you're in
2: you're in socal at the moment are you yeah yeah born and raised out here wow and
0: what what about your family like mom and dad what did they do for work so my mom was an accountant. She's both my parents are retired now at this point, uh, but she worked in accounting and budgeting for a school district out here. And my dad worked in a warehouse. He managed a warehouse, and so that, that's what that's what I got to see them do growing up. Yeah. Now you are an accountant by trade. Is that correct? Uh, Well now I've moved into analyst work But I did do accounting work Probably It's been about two years Because I just couldn't take it anymore So I had to (laughs) to Change it
2: up (laughs) So what are you doing for work as your day job Because the podcast that you're working on Is
0: basically your side
2: hustle right?
0: Yeah, exactly. I'm still working full time in my day gig. So I work as a, an, an analyst for local government out here. So I help them prepare their annual budget, uh, monitor revenue and expenses, and all that really exciting, <laughs> fun stuff. Yeah, that's amazing. Because I think when we first caught up, were you working at Target head office or something like that? Oh, no, no, not at the time. When we first met I would have been running, I think at the time I was running a payroll department. Right. Uh, So yeah, that which is. I mean, if you can think of something more exciting than running a payroll department, I would love (laughs) to hear it. But that's, (laughs) that's what I was doing at the time. Far
2: out. So who is your average listener for Popcorn Finance? And I guess,
0: why did you start the podcast about money? That's a great question. I would say the, for the first part, the average listener is someone in that millennial age range. So I'll say someone in their, their mid twenties to uh, late thirties, even sometimes pushing into Gen X for the early forties. I say that's like the typical person I have reached out to me or I noticed is checking out the show. And they're typically someone who is, they are bringing in some income, but it's just one of those things like we don't grow up learning these things. So they just have, they just want a starting point. They want to know what am I, what should I be doing? Am I doing this wrong? What do all these terms mean? Mm. And so that's like the typical person I would say who's who's listening to the show right now. Yeah, and what are the kind of main issues that
2: you're constantly addressing with your listeners?
0: I would say the biggest thing that I'm seeing right now, for sure, number one is investing, and I think it's one of those things that it's it's so prominent now, and especially with these apps like Robinhood, but but there's all these micro apps that have you do micro investing, and it's making it more common that you'll see someone whip out their phone and you know buy some shares of Tesla or McDonald's or something random. And I think more people now are like, I know I want to do this, I need to be doing this, but what do I do? Well, How does this work? And what am I getting myself into? Do you think most people that are really keen on
2: investing, and it's just the thought I instantly had then, do you think we're as a society and, you know, investors, quote unquote, as a default, we're more interested in making a quick buck to make our life Mm. easier or genuinely want to invest for the future so we can have a better life down the track?
0: Mm. That's a a great question because- Oftentimes, when I hear someone say, "I want to get into investing," I want to learn more about this investing. I my first reaction is, "Is you're thinking about gambling? You're thinking about that short term gain. How can I take this hundred dollars and turn it into a million dollars and never have to go to work again?" And I think there's a lot of focus on right now in the short run. How can I make some money? Versus. I know I want to stop working later on in life. Maybe it's, you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. What can I do to set myself up for that? I don't. I think a lot more of the focus and the attention is being put on these very short-term gains, which is where a lot of people get in trouble. And I think uh, you it causes people to lose sight of what the real goal is and what the real focus should be on. Because a lot of times we're jumping in these apps and we, we're just kind of guessing and just following what other people are doing. And I think if you don't have that, plan and that strategy in place like i see people put in
2: facebook groups like oh hey i just got this micro investing appetite, 19% last 12 months mm. i mean that's yeah. nice but it really doesn't mean anything cuz we need to look at the last 7
0: years exactly exactly and, and i think a lot of times it's it's very attractive seeing these short term gains because people can make these outrageous gains in the short run it's I mean, it's possible people do it all the time they'll they'll you know i have so a friend who bought tesla not that long ago that's why that always pops to my mind and he it's like quadrupled since he bought it and he's like you know talking about it all the time and i was like that's great but could you keep doing that for the next 20 30 years i don't think so i mean if you want to try go for it but I, people do lose sight of what something happens once doesn't mean it's going to keep happening over and over again here's a, I guess, a psychology question. You know,
2: what would you say is the best investment that an individual or a family could make? And it doesn't need to be, you know, buy Tesla stock. Just generally, (laughs) we're doing a a university lecturer in the, the, what is it, philosophy class about investing. Like, what do you think the absolute best investment and i'll have a think as well because i don't know my answer yet what do we think the best investment that someone or a family could make and we'll just pause for two seconds and have a
0: think Ooh, this is a great question this is a hard question but this is is a great question
2: because realistically there are so many pillars in our life isn't there there's our health our relationship our careers our
0: money yeah you know if I if I okay, I'm I'm throwing something out there. I don't know how good this is gonna be, but this is something that came to mind. I think a lot of the decisions we make, or the lot of the issues we we have that we're trying to solve, I think a lot of them can kind of come back to the work we're doing. At least from the people I know, like the my friends, family, either they're unhappy and stressed because of their job, they are stressed because their job doesn't pay them enough money, they're you know, in inner turmoil because they don't know what they want to do for a career. And I think one of the biggest investments you can make, and this is my struggle with, because for me, I came come out of college, I didn't know what I was going to do. I just was like, I, I got to get a job, whatever it may be. And, and that's not selling CDs on the side of the street. And so I think an investment in learning more about yourself and spending some time kind of exploring options that are out there, because I don't think a lot of us give ourselves the time to learn more about ourselves, our likes, our habits, the things that we enjoy, the things that fulfill us. And instead, we're just on this nonstop path to trying to be successful, make money and start a a life that we're supposed to have without even having a reason why or knowing where we're going. That's really good. You're a scholar, my friend. (laughs) Thank you. I I don't know if you can see me sweating there. Yeah, well,
2: it's funny because I was kind of the same thing and the more you talk, the more I change my answer. (laughs) But but it's like, it all came back to me when we're talking about the investing and people chasing that quick return. Mm. I think the best investment we can make into our investment account is the monthly capital we put in Mm. because that's going to be the strongest return. Like if you had $1,000 in your account, you put $100 in, that's a 10% return straight away. So, but if we step back further, like you said, the career, the work that we're doing, you know, if we're happy in our career, in our life, there's probably more of a chance of making more money. And yeah. I guess, can we invest in the concept of having a, really good balance in our life. And for me and My Millennial Money with the spinoff podcast, and and just today I had a chat with the team because they're like, what do we do with branding? And should we change the name? And I basically said, no, My Millennial Money stays and the spinoffs happen around it. So My Millennial Health and Wellness, My Millennial Career. If you nail these parts of your life, the money will follow. So
0: how can we invest in balance? Ooh, I, I love that. that you're, you're so right. Because if your life is out of balance and you're just so focused on just this one area and just neglecting everything else, mm. I mean, it's, it's no wonder people want to make these home run plays with their investments to try to get rich, to kind of almost buy, your, buy yourself out of the situation. That's what people are hoping to do. And I mean, I'm not
2: married. You're a married man. If you didn't put any uh, effort into the balance of your relationship, uh, your relationship would walk out the door. So the yeah. same with our career and our money if we don't pay attention to it and make sure it's balanced those areas of our life will just disappear and be a train wreck right so
0: yeah beautifully put there yeah it sounds like you're the philosopher over there
2: okay. well what can i say i uh, <laughs> <laughs> learned, learned everything from popcorn finance podcast <laughs> you talked about college and i know this is a big deal for americans more so than australians What was your own
0: relationship and view on student loans and student debt? You know, I was very, very fortunate uh, with my college experience. So I went into college around, I think it was 2005 when I went in. And I just kind of, I don't know what happened in between when I went in and when I graduated, but the cost of college ballooned out of control. Uh, So by the time I graduated, I was able to get out of there. I think it cost roughly $12,000 for the four years of college, which is extremely cheap by today's standards, especially out here in the U.S. And uh, my parents were the ones who who covered the cost because, you know, they're very kind and and generous in allowing me to do that. But I know my brother is six years younger than me. By the time he went to college, it was twice as much as what I was paying easily. And that's the big issue out here is that the cost of college is growing exponentially. And Mm. the issue is there's a lot of cultural pressure to go to the best possible school by reputation. And a school could have a great reputation because they have a great football team. You know, there's, there's not always the best academic team or, or school, but they have they they're on TV, so you know who they are. You grew up seeing these colleges and seeing the the logo and the colors. Uh, or it just it could be a school with just a great reputation that is extremely expensive. And so there's this pressure to go to the best school regardless of cost because that's your best. Why wouldn't you do the best thing for yourself? Why wouldn't you go to the best possible school? Uh, Not really making the, I mean, you're 18. You're not making the the cost-benefit analysis of, well, I want to be a teacher and I'm only going to get paid Forty thousand dollars a year starting out, so maybe I shouldn't pay $150,000 for school. I, you, don't, you can't make that decision. We're too young you know, to really logically sit there and think that out. You just want to do what you think is best for you in your future, because that's what everyone tells you to do. And for me, fortunately, I was able to get through college without that, that cost hanging over me. But I have so many friends who've had you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loan debt that some of them are still, to this day, paying off. Wow. It's my interpretation that the student loan debt,
2: the tuition cost within itself is probably around 40 or 50 grand for a degree in a you know in state school, but people will borrow for the living expenses. Is that a fair assumption or does the student loan lenders go, hey, 18-year-old, do you want to go to college? And she might say, yeah. And he might go, yeah, whatever. And they say, okay, well, here's a line of credit for 150 grand uh, that will stipend out to you over the next four years. So, you can live on campus and have the experience. Like are people eating up their college tuition literally with food and
0: entertainment and going out and not working? There are people who do that. There are people who will. And I've had friends who told me this where, you know, their school maybe was only, you know, $20,000. But the, they said they would give me forty, so I took it. <laughs> so there are those situations. But you're right. The cost of living on top of that is huge. Sometimes they could double your tuition. And if, you've, if you're if you selecting a college that's nowhere near where you live or where family lives, you have no choice but to live on campus. And so that's what's happening to a lot of these students as well. Not only are they stuck with uh, a tuition cost that could be, you know, maybe Five to six thousand, if you're going to a local state school, or maybe up to forty, fifty thousand per year, if you're going to a private school. And then on top of that, you're tagging on the cost of room and board and you know, your food, and maybe you need, you know, things to fill your place with. Yeah, it, it can stack up, and if you don't have, if you don't, at eighteen year old, eighteen years old, you're moving to a new city, uh, maybe a new state. You probably don't have a job when you're stepping your seven foot on the campus. So oftentimes, your people are living on these loans. It's just lunacy and yeah, I I kind of tell people my unsolicited
2: advice. It's like, if you don't know what you want to do at 18, just don't get pregnant, don't get someone else pregnant, stay off drugs, (laughs) stay out of jail and work out when you're 25
0: what you want to do. Then you'll have the best freaking shot of making it. Mm. Anyway... Yeah. There's so much pressure though. I think that's why it's hard. It's like mm. at 18, they, they have these huge expectations placed on them to know what's going to happen. And you don't know. I mean, you know, who, who knows what they're doing at 18? Very very few people I know. How, I, I, was, I was about to say, how dumb's America? But I don't
2: want to insult uh, you, <laughs> you. But it's like, okay, you're 18. Uh, you can make a decision whether you want to take out 150K worth of debt, or but you can't drink alcohol le- legally and you can't vote. Or can you vote at 18 in America? You
0: can, 18 is where you can first start voting. Okay. Right.
2: Okay. But you can't have alcohol. That's very, very bad. Um, but 150 grand
0: of debt is very, very good. I mean, it's it just- no sense <laughs> logically. If, you, if anyone took time to think about it, you would say, huh, this mm. is, doesn't seem like a smart idea.
2: Yeah. Wild. Now, living in the USA, you're in um, Southern California. Are you in, was it Santa, San Antonio? No, Santa Barbara, San,
0: where are you? So I'm just below Los Angeles. So I'm maybe like, you know, 20 minutes outside of Los Angeles. Proper. Oh, perfect. So California, talk to us about
2: conceptually California real estate. Do hmm. you own your property or are you renting? How hard is it to buy a house, uh, particularly around greater LA? Hmm.
0: Well, we are renting right now because the California real estate market is crazy, crazy expensive. And California is, is a gigantic state. It spans, you know, a huge chunk of the West coast here in the United States. And there's like the two main hubs you can think of. There's San Francisco and then you have the Los Angeles area. And what we're seeing is during, we had that big recession back like in, started around 2008 and it all was really centered around this overinflated housing market and the prices that ballooned so high and people were allowed to take out these huge mortgages that they really couldn't afford. It became this whole, I mean, people, I think people are familiar with what happened at this point. And so prices plunged It became actually reasonable to some extent, uh, but they've just made their way nearly back to where they were, maybe even higher, depending on what, what city you live in. And so right now, I think in the greater Los Angeles area, the average home price, I, I believe, the last time I looked, is somewhere around six hundred thousand dollars, somewhere in that ballpark, which is a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> especially so, for a home,
2: so that's pressing on a million Australian for us
0: ish. Yeah, it's not. It's not a reasonable amount of money under any circumstance, and. The thing is, it varies so much from other states because you could move over one state to the east of us, Arizona, which a lot of Californians have moved to, and get a much more reasonable price of living, maybe a home that's closer to uh, 200000 Hopefully, you help me with the conversion on that, <laughs> but uh, literally a third of yeah. the price of what you would pay here. Yeah. Wow.
2: Now, I guess in podcast land, in entertainment land, there was a big thing. Uh, Joe Rogan, he, he moved from LA, uh, I think- there's other kind of high profile people moving from LA and they're kind of talking about this, Oh, it's too crowded and chaotic uh, where I, my own personal view is because, you know, Joe Rogan had that huge Spotify deal uh, and it's talked about over a hundred million dollars. I think him moving to uh, Texas was a tax play uh, rather than this. It's too busy here. So talk to us about how the taxes work in the states, so there's federal tax for your income and state mm-hmm. income tax. Is that correct?
0: Uh, yeah, well, partially. So the there is definitely a federal. Tax that everyone pays in the country, and then there, which is much higher than a state uh, level tax. But not every state has an income tax, so that's where people make the decisions. Where it's like, okay, I've seen people move to Oregon, for example, which is just north of California, and they don't have a sales tax, for example. And so, when you buy something, you don't pay any tax on it. Uh, or people move to Texas, where I believe, if, if this is still the case, they don't have income tax. So the only tax you'd be subject to paying there is just your federal income tax. Whereas in California, you're hit with both and California is considered to be one of the states with the highest uh, state income taxes in the country especially specifically focus on those with the much higher you know the wealthier income brackets but it, it still ranks I think towards the top when it comes to income tax. so what's what's the general income tax rate
2: for California?
0: I believe, so I'd say if like the normal income range, I believe if you get somewhere around uh, the $100,000 mark, last time I checked, you're somewhere around that 9%, Okay. percent uh, state income tax that you would pay on top of your federal income tax that you're already paying.
2: Which could be 25
0: to 30% for the average punter? Uh, well, I would say... People, most people are somewhere in that either 15 or 20% sure, uh, sure. tax bracket. And here it's a, it's a progressive tax. So not all of your money is taxed at that, but mm. every time you move into a new bracket, that extra dollar in that higher bracket gets taxed at that higher rate. And, and that's, I
2: think, why Joe Rogan moved to Texas because if he's getting $100 million from Spotify, well, I'll just move to Texas and that $10 million of tax saving, I'll just buy a house with it there.
0: Yeah, easily. And on top of that, the corporate taxes are going to be lower there as well. Yeah. And that's why we've seen businesses shift from California to Texas. It's slowed down a little bit, but there's a huge um, migration of businesses. I'd say like in the early to mid 2000s, moving to Texas, just because it was a a cheaper place to run a business. Yeah. So they have a people, a
2: podcast exclusive, Glenn and Chris, (laughs) Decode, Joe Rogan, and the real reason he moved to Texas. Now- Truth out there. Yeah, that's right. The whole issue of 2020, in a nutshell, particularly for the states, COVID racism, mm-hmm. election, <laughs> um, I don't want to touch on, off? yeah, I, I really don't want to touch on COVID or the election because you know, we're all over that. But one thing you know we should never stop talking about is racism. Being a black man and a black family, have you had any adverse effects of racism yourself? Have you had any stories? Has it affected where your plans of living have been? Just talk to us about that and your own experiences there.
0: No, that's. I'm, I'm happy that you're bringing that up because it's something that we're dealing with now. And it's. I don't think it's something that we've ever stopped dealing with in the country. But because of the recent events of police brutality and murders that have occurred, more people are open to having the conversation. And I think that's the key difference uh, is that people are not only telling their stories, but people are listening to it. And I think that was a case in the past where people were sharing, these are the things that are happening, but there was always this, well, well what did he do? Why did why were they shy? Or why did they do this? They must They must have done something wrong. There's always a, a reasoning, a way of why something happened to a black person or another person of color out here. Uh, but now people are like, okay, We have now there's 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 more videos than ever because there's more cell phones than ever out there. And so people are seeing there's really brutal things happening and it's just happening for no other reason than someone thinks that this black person's life is less valuable or it's okay to end someone's life just because of the color of their skin. Uh, And so we're we're seeing more of these conversations now. And um, I know for for us, one of the reasons that we've stuck in California because California is considered one of the more diverse states in the country. Uh, a lot of people migrate here from other countries, from other parts of the U.S. And so you get very diverse pools of people. So you can see people from all different backgrounds, all different uh, nationalities, all in this one space. We, you know, we still have problems. Uh, this discrimination for sure still happens out here. You have pockets where people have kind of like, you know, tucked away and separated themselves by by their race. But uh, for the most part, it's considered one of the more diverse uh, spots in the country. So for us, it's been, you know. We've heard other places are cheaper. We've heard other places you can you can actually afford a house, or you can you know experience a different way of living. But the question you have to ask yourself is: If I move to this new place, will I be accepted and treated the same as someone else? Will I be welcomed into this community, or will there be an issue of what are you doing here? You don't belong in this area, mm. and that is an issue
2: worth talking about because there are so many people listening right now. I've never heard someone say that that's a consideration when looking where to live. And it's just unfathomable that you would have to have that thought in, you know, in this day and age.
0: Yeah. It's, it's it's a weird thing to think about. And it's one of those things that, Uh, I've talked to friends and family about it. And, you know, we all, we have these conversations like, oh, you know, that place is probably racist or, you know, I've been over there and that was weird. I don't think I'll go back over there. I couldn't see myself living there, but I don't, you don't really think about other people don't obviously have that same experience or that thought process. Uh, and my dad, he's from, well, both my parents are from the, the, they call it the South, but it's really kind of like the, the Southeast portion of the United States. Uh, and you know, that's where the hub of slavery was, you know, hundreds of years ago. That's where, you know, most of the plantations were. They were in the North as well, but that's, that's, that's considered the hub of slavery. That's where the, the most <laughs> atrocious things are going on. Is that the Carolinas or am I, is my geography off? Carolinas would be part of it. So it really goes from, so Texas is kind of like, almost like the middle yeah. of the U S at the bottom. Yeah. So it's almost like Texas on over to the Carolinas and Florida's, Louisiana's, Arkansas's, Kentucky's, all of that kind of made up, the South There's several other states in that, mm-hmm. in that grouping. Uh, and this is kind of like early on in the U S where that kind of, the U S hadn't extended all the way to the West at that point. It was really those original like 13 States on mm-hmm. the East coast there. And and so what you found is that, you know, after slavery, you, you saw a lot of uh, black families leave the area and that's kind of, always uh, kind of spread across the country because, you know, you're getting away from this oppressive area. Uh, but, Those areas were some of the last places to change some of their oppressive laws and practices and some of that culture still hangs around. So that's why there was the whole issue with the Confederate statues finally being taken down in some of these places where they were monuments to the army that lost in the Mm -hmm. Civil War. But they kept them up. It was this whole propaganda thing that started up after the Civil War to kind of promote and, you know, Keep the fear that that uh, that that period of time had caused in the area. Mm. And so my daddy grew up in Arkansas, obviously not, you know, during the Civil War, but he he grew up in Arkansas, which is uh, just to the east of Texas. So um, it's kind of like close to the middle, but in that southern part. And he would tell me stories. So my dad right now, he is 66 years old. And so he would tell me stories of growing up and going to places to get food with his grandfather and them having to go to the back of the building. They weren't allowed to walk into the front of the restaurant. They had to go to the back. There was a small window. They had to order and pay there. And and, and that was not that long ago. That was, you know, what, 60-ish years ago, 50, 60 years ago, that something like that was going on. And so those things don't go away those, those feelings that the people have in those areas don't go away quickly and I, I think
2: if you if you look at time as a spectrum of I'll just make a number up in history 500, 500 years ago and today on that spectrum your dad experiencing what he did that's still happening today if yeah, you look okay. at it as a, a spectrum like it's basically two minutes ago on a big spectrum so it, we do need to keep talking about this I there's a documentary I'd want everyone to watch and I thought it was a good eye-opener, particularly for the States. And I believe it's on Net Amendment or um, it's got the American flag upside down. Oh yeah, I
0: I, I know what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, and it was basically the law on drugs and something that's like, America's got 5% of the world's population, but 20% of the world's incarcerated. And it just talks about this... And don't quote me on that stat, but it's something horrendous like that uh, about over time the war on drugs and basically uh, arresting young black men at any excuse, basically, and throwing them in jail. And then it leads into this economy of prisons and, you know, prisons making stuff. And it's a billion dollar private industry and it's this big machine. And it's just so eye opening and heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things where it. When you think about it, it doesn't make a lot of sense for the prison system to be for the most part you know hugely privatized where these private businesses are able to you know make money off the fact that they're putting people in jail and we, why wouldn't you be incentivized to keep your business thriving by putting more people in there you you don't want everyone to be you know um to recover and pick up a better life and have their communities improve if that's going to cause your business to fail. That's not good business to have people do better
2: absolutely so Well, thanks for chatting about your story and some experiences there. We're going to have a quick break. And when we get back, I'm going to talk to Chris about investing, his investment philosophies, how he manages his own money. And I'm
1: looking forward to this part. We'll be right back in one minute. So, Chris,
2: you're a happily married young man with a beautiful wife. What's your wife's role in your household with money? And I'm not saying that as a loaded question, Glenn's a misogynist, blah, blah, blah. I'm saying that because in some relationships, one person will do one thing, one person will do the other thing. Sometimes it's a team effort. So, what's the role of money like in your family as it stands?
0: I think by default, I kind of became the money person just because that's what I went to school for, is what I talk about all the time. So it kind of just naturally gravitated towards me, but I've always had the the philosophy that we both need to be involved because I don't I don't ever want it to be a, I'm putting out orders because that's not that's not a partnership. That's not how it works. You can't hand me one person, tell the other person what to do. I wanted to be We'll sit down. We'll we'll decide on how we're going to spend money, and then I'm okay with being the one doing the record keeping and and looking back and giving updates. Because. Like, I'm a, I'm a nerd and I like, I like those things. So it doesn't bother me, but it's, it's, it's a situation where we sit down, we decide, okay, this is our goal. This is what we want to work towards. This is what the budget should look like over the next few months. And then once we decide on that together, then it's me being the, uh, the, the record keeper <laughs> and tracking everything. Yeah. So it's not as if, you know, if you passed away
2: prematurely, your wife would just be so just, Oh, what do I do? How do I use the credit card? Like, you know what I mean? Like it's nothing like that involved, informed, but you mainly
0: execute and keep records. Yeah, exactly. Because that's an issue. There's, there's so many women who are in a situation where they're not allowed to be part of the process. And the husband's like, don't worry, I'll take care of this. And then, either they end up in a situation where something happens to the husband and now they're just stuck, like you said, or they get completely cut out and there's mistrust and abuse financially. And uh, it's like, I don't, I don't want to see that happen because that's, that's not the way it should be. To no, me. totally.
2: Now, um, you currently don't have kids, uh, kids on the horizon with you at the
0: moment in your money plans. Not as of right now, I've not made any, any significant changes to, to reject one coming anytime soon. So as of right now, uh, not something we're factoring in. Yeah. Great. So how do you guys as a household manage your money?
2: I assume your wife is working and mm-hmm. you're working as well. So you both get paid. Talk to us about the practicalities, the account set up, where money goes each week, each month or whatever it is. How do you manage money? For
0: me, I'm, I've gotten better at better at adding more automation into what we do because initially starting out I was manually doing everything so My day on payday was normally spent, you know, sitting at my computer, moving money around, depositing this, making payments. It was a headache. I was doing more work than I should. It wasn't smart. And so what we do now is we just incorporate a lot of automated transfers to make the process run smoothly. So what we've decided and what was work for us and we've kind of worked it through over a number of years is having one joint account where the bulk of the money goes into. So on payday. The bulk of the money is going into this one account that we share, and then we both maintain separate accounts. And we put uh, a small amount of money in there to say this is what we have to do, what we want with. Because that way, there's no there's no guilt if if someone bu- if one person buys something that the other person thinks is a waste of money, you never have to know, and it's none of your concern because it, we've agreed this goes over here, and we don't we don't question or badger each other about those types of things. So, question on that, yeah. you know, I,
2: I know couples who have done that, their own little accounts. If one person is a bit of a, either a tight ass or a saver or doesn't want to, you know, spend a cent and they've got their little weekly fund money that they've built up to $5,000, like, has it ever been a case where it's like, I don't know, like, can they go and buy a $5,000 big thing? Uh, Because in some instances, that can be a real problem that, oh, she or he wants to buy a $5,000 motorbike. (laughs) But, well, he or she's just basically gone, I don't want to buy ongoing frivolous stuff throughout the week. I'm going to save up and buy a chunky thing. Like, has that ever been a problem or do we agree that if these accounts get over X amount, we put the surplus back into general revenue or am I just reading into a million things too deep?
0: I mean, you're, you're getting deep into the, the accounting side of there. But uh, no, for us, it's more so... I, we've never had that situation. Neither one of us have ever gotten to that point. I don't have that much discipline to let that money sit there for, for fun stuff and let it build to that point. But for us, it's it's really a... I have no idea what her balance is. That she has no idea where mine is in those separate accounts. And if if she decided, hey, I'm going to save this up for the next you know two years, and then I'm going to buy a car with it... I mean, it's not that much money. I doubt we'll get to that point. But if that happened... I wouldn't care because it's like, well, it, it didn't affect the rest of the plan, and I think that that's the big thing for us is the point of having it separated is that we have goals and plans, and if, if one of us were to just pull a huge chunk of money out of the primary account that we're using for other things, that's going to derail a lot of stuff. But if you can make if you can buy what you want and it doesn't all, it doesn't mess up anything else, I, for me, I really don't care. It yeah. I'd be fine. I'd be hey, I was like, that's pretty cool. Maybe I need to do that next yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> Credit cards thoughts,
2: opinions? Do you have one? Do you have three? Do you have eight? Do you chase points for fun? What do you do with credit
0: cards? I have um, I have very mixed feelings about credit cards. So I do have them. We have them. We have several and we've used them to travel using the rewards and things like that. But at the same time, I know that it's a big sticking point for a lot of people. It a, it's a, it's, has put people in a lot of really bad financial situations. Uh, that was where we got the majority of our debt from. When we were first married, we paid for our wedding with credit cards, furniture for our first place for credit cards, medical bills, everything you could think of because we didn't have any money. And it set us back several years because it took time to actually pay that balance off and get serious and, and focus. And so for me, I, I approach credit cards with so much caution and I don't just recommend everyone, Oh, don't worry. Just make sure you make the payment. Cause I know that it's not going to happen for everyone. It's just, it's going to happen where you make a mistake. We all get to that point where we've all made bad decisions and a credit card just makes it that much easier to do so. So I, I would love for everyone to be able to take advantage of the rewards and you know, travel for free and get that cash back because you, you know, it can help. It can allow you to do the things you couldn't do just with your own salary. But at the same time, I know that that danger and the temptations kind of sitting out there lurking behind the scenes. So what you're saying is you can buy
2: stuff without having money for it. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) How
0: how does that work? (laughs) How does that work? You know, I told, I told a friend this, it hit me. I don't know when it was. And, during that time when we built up all this credit card debt when we first got married I realized that I was using the card as a way of never feeling broke like we didn't have the money we weren't making I think at the beginning we were maybe making combined maybe $55,000 in Southern California which is not enough at all out here mm-hmm. and I was never I never felt broke because I could always pull out the credit card and buy something I wanted. Or if I accidentally overspent and we needed groceries, don't worry, I got the credit card right here. And it was a crutch. Yeah, an emotional
2: crutch, basically. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Interesting, very interesting. Most people know my views on credit cards. What's your own, and if you don't know, I don't use one. Um, what's your own investment philosophy? Like, do you have a a general mm-hmm. You know, Chris Browning, this is my philosophy on investing.
0: I've recently started to kind of refine my, my thoughts and philosophy on, on investing my money. And I think I've settled on this, at least for right now, that investing should be one of the most boring things I do. I want it to be one of those things. I don't think about it. I don't worry. If some crazy thing pops up on the news about the stock market going crazy, I just turn it to something else. I want it to be the most uninteresting part of my life because I don't have time to sit here and stress and go through and try to pick the best stock that I think is going to beat the market because I'm going to do a horrible job and I'm probably not going to be able to do it in 99.9% of every attempt I make. And so for me, I think it should be something very boring, very basic. I, I believe in going with simple, low cost index funds, spread my risk over the entire stock market and just let it ride and sit there.
2: Nice. Now, do you have any investment properties or any kind of debt against any investments?
0: Uh, no. no, no, no debt against investments or any properties that we're managing right now.
2: Right. So you're effectively debt
0: free. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's it's a recent thing. Probably over the past couple of years, where we paid off everything: cars, credit cards, all that stuff is out of out the picture right now.
2: So basically. With your investing, like, are you saving for any big things with cash at the moment that's not e marked for investing, quote unquote?
0: I think the biggest pool of cash we have right now is is our emergency fund. So we have about 6 months of our expenses that we just leave sitting in cash just in case something goes down that we, yeah. weren't, that we weren't expecting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we're also doing additional savings for maybe maybe a house in the future. We'll, we'll we'll see what the market looks like. Yeah, totally. Uh, you mentioned you're an
2: indexed fund passive investor. Do you load up your retirement accounts first or do you invest with ordinary money? outside of retirement
0: oh, okay so like do I have like a brokerage account in addition to like a retirement account yeah I mean, yes as of right now I'd say I'd say almost all very few few dollars don't go into a retirement account right now. And it, it was mainly because we're, we're catching up because we spent so much time paying off debt. So I, I've really focused on kind of getting back into the retirement account and making sure we, we put enough in those to feel secure. Uh, but I have recently been thinking about the fact that I don't want to, I want to retire before the traditional age, mm. uh, which if all my money is in one of my work plans or uh, an individual retirement account we have out here, it will be locked up and I wouldn't have access to it. So now I'm starting to make plans to Uh, invest outside of those plans that have a locked age on when you can access them
2: yeah and what's your um in terms of your retirement accounts and your passive
0: funds um do most people use vanguard like what are you using So right now I'm using, so through my work plan, they they use Vanguard funds. So that makes it nice and easy and cheap. And then uh, I've also been testing out some of the robo advisors. So I've been using some of those apps to kind of get familiar with them and they use a mixture of Vanguard funds. So Vanguard is really having a moment right now where Mm. people are realizing how cheap they are in comparison to a lot of the other options that are out there. So they're actually becoming, their funds are becoming available in more places now, which is is great.
2: Yeah. I actually invest um, in my... I guess, non retirement money in the Vanguard total US market fund. Mm. And it's so bloody cheap. Like, it's ridiculous. 0.02% management fee. That's what I pay. Like, it's just wild. Oh, so cheap. What's, (laughs) I guess, in finishing up, and thanks for sharing, you know, what you do with uh, your own money and investing. What do you think your biggest. I guess investing on money myth that you see that's out there.
0: Ooh, the biggest myth that I see. You know, I, whenever whenever I think about this type of of question, I think of a friend I have. I will not name him just in case he hears this. I will not name who he is. But I remember talking to him about you know index investing, and I was just kind of really learning about it and understanding you know the co- the cost structure and how much money you're saving versus. I'm um, going with some other options. And he, he was like, well, I have this guy. I got this guy. And, and he does a great job with my investments. And I was like, well, who's this guy? He's like, oh, it's a friend of a friend. Uh, he got me, I forgot. What he, he, he named some crazy percentage. You got me 22% last year. And I was like, that doesn't sound right. Uh, that sounds like a lot of money. I don't know how that happened. And I was like, is he doing that every year? He's like, well, you know, it was a good year. And I think the biggest myth is that there's these geniuses out there, these people who can see the future, and can just they can they can make your money grow so much faster than anyone else out there like why would you why would you trust yourself why would you do something boring because if you're going to invest in index funds and you're not doing anything how could you possibly do better than these people who they, they dedicate their lives to this craft and they study the charts and they're all, you know, and I think that's one of the biggest myths is that there's these these, these fortune tellers out there who are so great at what they do that they can make millionaires. And it's, it's a scary thing. And my comment to those people is,
2: if you're so bloody good, piss off, don't try and sell people your own bloody system, borrow heaps of money and turn your borrowed 500 grand into $8 million.
0: Exactly. Why are you working? If you're so yeah. great at this, you don't need a job. Yeah. Peace off. Get out of my life.
2: <laughs> Chris Browning, Popcorn Finance. Thanks so much for hanging out. Check out Popcorn Finance, the podcast, and you can follow Popcorn Finance on Instagram. Chris, I'll see you hopefully later this year at FinCon in Austin, Texas. Are you going to head down?
0: Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping to. I'm hoping things keep going well and we'll we'll be able to hang out there. See you all the way on the side of the, uh, the world.
2: Love it. Thanks, Chris. See you soon. Thanks for having me.